This is AQR's The Curious Investor, a show that breaks down some of the most important ideas in finance to help us make better investment decisions. I'm Gabe Figali. And I'm Dan Villalon. In this episode, we're going to explore the past, present, and future of quant. Before we get into it, let's start with what we mean by quant. Quant, or quantitative investing, is a data-driven approach to finance. Think of it as applying a scientific method to making investment decisions. So rather than a manager going out and visiting a company and interviewing management to gauge its prospects, a quant is more likely to say, hey, just show me the numbers and I'll make my own assessment. Quants and non-quants are both trying to maximize returns. And as we'll hear later in the season, the boundaries between quants and other kinds of investing are getting pretty blurry. But for now, let's focus on where quant came from and where it might be headed. To do this, we're going to speak with three of our colleagues at AQR, who all come at quant from a different perspective. Someone who's experienced firsthand how the quant landscape has changed over the years. Hi, my name's John Liu. I'm a co-founder of AQR. We also have a CTO who's implemented technology at financial institutions for decades. Hi, my name's Neil Pawar. I'm the chief technology officer at AQR Capital. And last, a big data and machine learning expert. The guy who's actually exploring cutting-edge ways of using data to make predictions. My name is Brian Kelly. I'm a professor of finance at the Yale School of Management, and I'm a vice president at AQR. All these people have a story to tell about quant's evolution and where technology is, and sometimes isn't, making us better investors. To start our journey back into the history of quant, we wanted to speak to somebody who was actually there in the early days, back when quant was migrating more and more from the lecture hall to the real world. I grew up in a very academic family. Both my parents were professors. That's AQR co-founder John Liu. Uh, My dad uh, was an economics professor uh, at the University of Oklahoma. And I guess because of that, As long as I can remember, I always assumed that I would be a professor too. Was that for the research side or for the teaching side or both? (laughs) What what did you prefer at that time? What what I really liked about being a professor was the fact that I got every summer off. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) No, but but what I liked about economics in particular was I've always liked math, but I also like the idea of using it for something that was applied. By the early 1990s, John was studying to get his PhD in finance at the University of Chicago. And his classmate was a young researcher by the name of Cliff Asnes. Cliff got offered a job at Goldman Sachs and eventually was asked to head up a new quant group. So he took the position and then began to staff up. He reached out to me and he asked, do you want to come join me? And what I heard was you get to do some of the cool, interesting stuff that we're learning in school, and you get to get paid a Wall Street salary to do it. And, and, and that really was kind of the extent of it. And, you know, to me, that, that sounded pretty cool. In academia, Cliff and John were studying some of the same factors that we talked about earlier in the season. But it was all very theoretical. Their research was being read in academic circles, but it wasn't being put to the test. This new group at Goldman was meant to do exactly that. Test these academic ideas with real money. The quant space was getting more and more active. 
Goldman and some other firms were courting recent grads to try to predict asset prices in a totally new way. So I remember thinking at the time, like, on what basis would we be able to come up with views on these things? Um, and so what we did was we reverted back to the things we were learning in school. So when we were at Chicago, Fama and French were working on value strategies. Professors Eugene Fama and Kenneth French pioneered many ideas that today are standard practice in academia. And some of their most cited work was being written when John was studying under them. When Fama and French, I think, were originally doing this research, they weren't thinking about developing trading strategies. It was much more of a academic exercise. You know, sort of if you think about the prevailing school of thought being that markets are efficient. So nobody should be able to pick stocks and, quote, beat the market. But what their research would show is that by adding a couple of factors to the traditional view of the world, you might be able to do just that. The really amazing thing is when they looked at the data, it seemed like, yeah, there was something to this. These very, very simple value-based trading strategies seem to generate returns in excess of uh, what you would expect, given traditional measures of risk. Fama and French didn't invent value, but they did help popularize it as a factor. They tested it using decades of data and found it was a pretty intuitive way to beat the market, at least historically. Gene Fama eventually went on to win the Nobel Prize for some of this work. And as intuitive as it was, many investors still thought of this type of quant investing as a super complex black box. You know, there's a group of young rocket scientist types. Uh, They're doing something. We don't know what they're doing, but they seem to be generating really good returns doing that. But that's not how John saw his own work as a quant. He just saw it as a continuation of what he was doing at the University of Chicago. If you look under the hood, it's really very straightforward applications of things that are fairly easily available in the academic literature. Uh, There was this funny disconnect between uh, the perception that we're this kind of super sophisticated, you know, mathematical equations that nobody can understand and sort of what we were doing, which seemed to me very straightforward. Fast forward a few years. John, Cliff, and Bob Crail, another classmate from Chicago, are at Goldman Sachs. And they're doing pretty well. Actually, really well. They started talking with another colleague, David Kabiller, who had the idea to set off on their own. And in 1998, AQR was born. At this point, quant has been a feature of the investment landscape for decades. And quants come in all stripes. They're all primarily focused on data, but some are more black boxy than others. Some employ higher turnover strategies like statistical arbitrage. Others trade much less frequently. The list goes on and on. And these different types of quants think about their businesses differently, too. There's a huge spectrum of different type of managers. There are quant firms that are started and populated by people that have come out of the hard sciences. So mathematicians, physicists, uh, the way those people think about markets and the way they model markets and the way they talk about markets is very different than, say, at an AQR, where, where we came out of academic finance and economics. And any type of quantitative investor, by definition, needs technological firepower to research, test, and refine their strategies. At AQR, that's where Neil Powar comes in. He's our chief technology officer, a role that has become crucial for really any financial institution. The role of tech has become a lot more prominent 
is is it kind of like a revenge of the nerd situation where do you feel like <laughs> relegated to the side and now it's 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 an extremely important part of of what people do is that the view I would say that 25 years ago we definitely felt a little bit more like the support stuff you know if your computer or your software isn't working call the IT guy and they will come help you but around then Technology started to play a more important role. Take trading, for example. In the early 90s, you know, some of the software I built was um, trade entry and pricing tools for, for rates derivatives products like swaps and options. But fundamentally, there was a trader using the software, picking up the phone, answering a call from a client, using the software perhaps to build a market or to price an instrument and then giving the price over the phone. Now, over the last 25 years, that model has moved to electronic market making where all of that just happens electronically with no human involved. Using technology to gain operational efficiency has always been important in the financial world. Think of things like trade execution, risk management, and accounting. But for us quants, technology can help us leverage and implement our investment ideas. And that's one way quants try to stay ahead of the pack. There's this common incentive, I think, that all players in the marketplace have, which is to be able to do these things more efficiently and focus the firepower on what differentiates us. The rest, over time, becomes commodity. Technology for quants has taken more and more of a leading role. And tools like machine learning and big data are places where finance and tech are increasingly working hand-in-hand. Brian Kelly is a professor at Yale and a researcher at AQR. He focuses a lot on these tools. Machine learning in the way that I use it to approach financial problems is very much just a predictive methodology. How do I use information to make forecasts? Machine learning wasn't invented yesterday. So one thing we wanted to understand from Brian was why investors are so focused on it today. There are lots of reasons. So... One is that for a huge amount of history, it was really hard to actually collect and manage data sets that had a lot of information in them. So it sort of limited the amount of information that we could put together for useful statistical analysis. Now you have a bunch of technological innovation, means we can always handle bigger and bigger data sets, track more and more things, and we can come up with more creative ways to use them in our models. Here's an example of how we can use much larger data sets today. Text processing. Let's just call the Wall Street Journal on a given day a document. Over the course of this 30 years, there are millions and millions of words that have showed up in the Wall Street Journal. So how do I use this information to, say, predict returns? What we'll do is we'll take all of these words and think of each word as a variable. The numerical representation of that variable is just going to be, well, how often does a given word occur on a given day in the Wall Street Journal? So I have the word advanced. Advanced shows up in July 1960, 10 times. In June 1965, seven times. That's a time series, and I can think about that as a predictor variable. And more generally, consider that humans have been exchanging information for millennia. Through conversations, trade, phone calls, practically any interaction. The difference today is that much of this is now recorded as data. Think of things like internet searches and social media posts. 
And today, thanks to technological advances, we're better equipped to not only capture that data, but process it. We can actually use things like text in Brian's Wall Street Journal example to evaluate investment decisions. The great hope of using textual data for understanding economics very broadly, for doing financial market prediction, is that the variables, the predictors themselves, are inherently interpretable, right? You'd love to find a model that ultimately just tells a story. A model that tells a story. Brian is suggesting that machine learning doesn't have to be just about alpha. It's a tool that may also improve our understanding of what we do and of markets more generally. In a way, this goes back to John's notion that quant doesn't have to be a black box. Investment ideas need to make economic sense. You know the saying, garbage in, garbage out? Well, same thing applies in algorithms for investing. I think there's a sense that the methods are so well-developed that there's almost not much need for a researcher anymore. All you need is a data manager, and you can take these off-the-shelf methods, plug in all of the information at your disposal, and they will build a predictor for you that has you know, reliable attributes. But if you try and bring that type of logic to any sort of financial problem, you learn immediately that that's just not the case. It's absolutely not the case that these methods are sophisticated enough to take any kind of unstructured data and give you reliable forecasts. You're almost guaranteed to fail if you try to do that. Big data and machine learning are really just tools to help us make better predictions. And what Brian is saying is that bigger computers and bigger data sets on their own aren't reliable ways to build a useful investment strategy. You need human insight to help machines make economically intuitive predictions. In fact, John Liu believes that the main job of a quant is to have a deep understanding of economics and finance. And then you can start to think about which technological tools can take you further. For us, in some ways, I think a lot of times the challenges are educational. And, you know, in that sense, a faster computer doesn't really make that much of a difference. The future of quant isn't really a takeover of machines. It's an integration of machines. The bread and butter of investing, things that make economic sense, will always be important. The business models haven't changed that dramatically, but the role of technologies versus humans, and then the, the technologies themselves, how they evolve, is constantly changing, and, and th there's no way we're done. I'm going to enjoy listening to this podcast in 2028 to see how wrong we all were or how potentially right we were. For folks who want to read more about the history of quant, check out the papers we've posted on aqr.com slash curious. And for our tech-savvy listeners, you can reach us via email at curious at aqr.com. Next week on The Curious Investor, Interest Rate Limbo. We ask a few experts about the economics of a low-yield world and what that means for a fixed-income investor. I'm Dan Villalon. And I'm Gabe Figali. Thanks for listening, everyone. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of AQR itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice 
and it should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions, which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. AQR does not assume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained from sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of AQR as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including any direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2018, AQR Capital Management, LLC, all rights reserved. One of the things I used to do in grad school uh, every afternoon was I would put my head down on my desk around two or three o'clock and take a nap. (laughs) (laughs) And so when, uh, when Cliff gave me the job at Goldman... I asked him, I'm like, hey, Cliff, is it cool if I, if I take a nap in the middle of the afternoon? And Cliff just kind of paused and he goes, no, that's not cool at all. And, and even to this day, uh, like, he's like, I can't believe you asked me that question.